Hi, and welcome to K-Pod, the podcast about Korean Americans in arts and culture from Korean American Story. I'm Juliana Sohn. I'm Catherine Hong. So, Catherine, let's introduce our guest, Chef Edward Lee. He's very well respected in the food world, but he was new to us because he's based in Kentucky. Yes, full disclosure. You know, I'm interested in food. I read a lot of food writing. I even watch a fair amount of food TV. But when I first came across Edward Lee a couple years ago, I have to admit, I had no idea who he was. I think I found an episode of the PBS series he had done back in 2014 called Mind of a Chef. And in that first episode, you see this Korean guy with a goatee walking around Canarsie, Brooklyn, talking about how growing up there gave him this entirely new perspective on food because it was such a mixing pot. And I thought to myself, why don't I know who this guy is? I don't recognize him. And he did a whole season of this food show. So we started researching him. And because Catherine and I grew up in the tri-state area, Koreans in the South are very intriguing for us. And of course, we quickly found out that he's been running acclaimed restaurants in Kentucky and Washington, D.C., including the flagship restaurant 610 Magnolia in Louisville, where he's infused Southern cuisine with Korean flavors like kimchi and soy sauce aged in whiskey barrels. We also learned that he's won a James Beard Award for his book, Buttermilk Graffiti, which is a combination of memoir, food history, travelogue, which Catherine and I both read and loved because he's such a gifted writer. Right. And then coincidentally, last year, NYU Magazine asked me to write a short piece about Edward Lee and the charitable work he's been doing with a nonprofit that he started called the Lee Initiative, which he co-founded a couple years ago to empower women in the restaurant world. But when the pandemic hit, he quickly shifted his focus to feeding restaurant workers and saving family farms. He even closed one of his restaurants, Milkwood, and reopened it as a community relief kitchen. So check out these impressive numbers. In 2020, the Lee Initiative served over 1.1 million meals, gave over 4 million in direct aid, and gave over 1 million in grants to small family farms. He's proven how nimble organizations like the Lee Initiative can provide aid quicker than governmental organizations, which are often overwhelmed by red tape. Chefs have really stepped up to serve distressed communities uh, during this pandemic. And, you know, workers in the food industry have just been devastated. I'm so glad we were able to interview him. He's been actually hard to get a hold of because aside from doing all this amazing relief work, he had been filming Top Chef season 18 in Portland for a couple of weeks. Um, it's all very top secret, but it was great that we got to hear a little bit about what that was like. And, you know, he's just such a genuinely talented chef. And I think he's really found his calling in the last year with all this work he's doing. He's someone who we learned has been an iconoclast his entire life. And I hope everyone enjoys hearing his story. Hi, Edward. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Can we start talking about Top Chef? Because I know that you recently- Everyone wants finished. to talk about Top Chef. <laughs> well, we won't make you reveal anything, but can you tell us anything about what it was like filming? It's nicer being a judge. It's, ni it's nicer to make people cry than to cry yourself. So <laughs> that's definitely, it's a better, uh, if, if given the choice, I'd rather take the latter. So you made people cry? Nah, I don't think so. I'm, I'm not that mean, I'm not that mean. But I think you do, you definitely have a little bit more sympathy, right? For people and what they go through. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, this is Korean American Story and K-Pod. So we are very interested in your childhood and your background. So mm-hmm. can we start by talking about um, Canarsie? Because Juliana and I, and I were both struck by the fact that your parents chose to settle in a part of Brooklyn where there were, there were no Koreans. Koreans. So yeah. I don't really get it. Why, why Canarsie? Um, why not Flushing? Was it work related? Was, was there a real estate? No, work? I think my, you know, my, my parents were very progressive. Um, I mean, they're traditional Korean parents, but they're very progressive in, in that sense. And they, and, and because um, I asked them that too much later in life, and they said, well, you know, we came to America for a reason. We came to America to be Americans, not to be Koreans. Sounds very different right now in this kind of day and age, but um, back then, you know, in the, in the 70s, you, you, most people came to America to assimilate, right, to, to be Americans, and they said, we wanted you to be American. We didn't want to um, have you grow up in a sheltered Korean environment, and, and um, just expose you to everything that is America. Now, I would argue, I don't know how American Canarsie Brooklyn was at the time, um, but but it was definitely a different world. And, and you know, I grew up with, with a lots of different cultures um, in, in, in Canarsie and, and lots of different people. And, and you know, it, it really was a melting pot um, of culture back then. So um, I've been exposed to these, you know, foreign smells and sights and and spices and things from a very very early age um and not only korean food but like jamaican food and polish food and russian food and you know all all these different uh you know spices so um it it, it eventually helped me i think uh, when i decided i wanted to be a chef so did your parents have their own support system and network did they have a korean church or something that they uh their own community they they did and they didn't. They definitely had friends in Flushing, and, and we would we would often go and and I think yeah they'd be like why are you living in Canarsie? <laughs> but I also well and and the other thing I think because Canarsie was kind of a crappy area, um, but we were able to get a, a, a maybe a bigger apartment there, you know, mm-hmm. and so like we grew up really poor, but like our apartment wasn't exactly like. Tiny, you know what I mean? It was like we were mm-hmm. poor, but we were also had like a decent sized apartment. And, and I think for my parents, especially my dad, like that was important to him. Like he had a nice big apartment. Because um, flushing at the time, you know, still it wasn't you know, because there were so many people coming in, it wasn't that cheap. But it's also interesting because a lot of the uh, Koreans were making the decision where to live based on the school system as well. So um, it must have been interesting. I mean, was it a rougher? They, my parents rougher... were not worried about the school system. Oh, really? <laughs> I think they just they just threw me into the wind and said, "You figure it out," in in the public school system of Brooklyn. But you know, listen, back then it was it was just I don't know. It was very different, right? It was just like you, you sink or swim. Like most Korean immigrants, I mean, they they worked very hard. They both worked two jobs. Mm-hmm. They worked very hard. I hardly saw them growing up. Um, and so they were they were trying to make ends meet on their end. Um, so yeah, my sister and I were both kind of left to left to ourselves, um, which is you know an interesting kind of freedom that you have when you're when you're a young kid living in Brooklyn. And your grandmother came to live with you, right? You had a homily. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, she lived with us for many many years. I and mean, she cooked all the time. And it was really it was through her that I really started to understand about food and cooking and and you know. You know, again, I was I was tiny, and I, and I wasn't thinking as a chef, but I was just I just 
like everything that she did in the kitchen was so enticing to me and it was so fascinating to me and I'm like oh, I always wanted to spend time in the kitchen and you know as a as a Korean male she didn't want to show me the kitchen you know like I wasn't supposed to be the hanging around her in the kitchen so she would always kick me out and she is funny she didn't really like that I liked food what are some cook. of the things you remember her cooking when you were a kid? Well, she always made, she always made, um, I mean, she, she would make gochujang, you know, from scratch. Like our windowsill was just like filled with kimchi and gochujang. Once a month, she would make a big thing of changchuri and then it would just like stink up the whole house for like days. Um, but she made everything from scratch. So you um, ate Korean food pretty much every day when you were a kid? Yeah, when I was a kid, yeah. We ate pretty much every day, especially when you're that young, you know, when you're a kid mm -hmm. and, and that's your, it's your comfort food. Just, there's always leftovers in the fridge. So it didn't matter. Yeah. Like I yeah. could always come home and put something together and there'd always be kimchi, there'd always be rice, there'd always be something, just throw something together, so. I love the story of um, how you used to accompany your grandmother to the laundry room and find old issues of gourmet and other food mm -hmm. magazine that you would read them. Other kids would hide Playboy magazines, you know, under their bed. And if you looked under my bed, it was all food magazines. It wasn't really encouraged. You know, my parents were not like, oh, great, go, go be a chef. And I've spoken about this before. Like to me, those food magazines and, and the, you know, the sophistication and, and the luster and, and, and the beauty of that fine dining, um, you know, also meant a world that was not poverty, right? And so mm -hmm. I think when you live in Brooklyn or Queens, it's really fascinating because every single day I would take the subway home and you could see Manhattan from the skyline, right? And so it was like, it was just a few train stops away. Um, and yet it was still so far away in terms of like, um, it was still a fantasy land. It was, it was like, I may as well lived in Iowa um, because to get to Manhattan to, to sort of achieve what all that meant um, was, was so beyond what I thought like my dreams could, could take me. So um, in some ways, like food was the place where I kind of um, took refuge and said, you know, if I learn to cook like this, if I learn to, you know, eat like this and act like this, um, I can get to that place, you know. Food represented a way out, a way into some kind of luxury land. So we wanted to ask you, what kind of a, a kid were you? I've read so many descriptions about you wearing mascara and combat boots and... Uh... You grew up in New York in the 80s, you, you know. You know. <laughs> so were your progressive parents, uh, like, how did they take that? Oh, they, they, they hated it. They hated it. <laughs> <laughs> It was New York in the 80s. It's the beauty and and the you know not so not so great thing about New York is that you're exposed to so much, right? You see so like anything you want in New York you can have, you know, at a very early age. So so you I think you grow up very young, right? You you become very mature very fast in New York. Um, but then there's also the you know the not so great side of it, and you know I was probably drinking more than I should have when I was a little kid, and stuff like that, and hanging out hanging out late. Uh, when I shouldn't have. I would not raise my daughter uh, in the same yeah. environment that I that I grew up in. It was a very interesting place to grow up, though, I would say, and, and, and just being exposed to so many different people, so many cultures. Um, you know, I had, I had friends from, from every walk of life, you know, from every different culture. And, and um, it didn't, it wasn't even, it didn't feel different. 
it was just natural like and and then that that is something that's still so beautiful about new york so your book is called buttermilk graffiti you talk about mm -hmm. how when you were a teenager you would go and tag trains mm -hmm. um did your parents ever find out you had this secret nighttime life i don't think i don't even think they knew what it no i don't think so no i don't even think they knew what that was you know they were they were very busy with their with their uh with their jobs um, they just thought I was out, you know, doing whatever. And you say at some point that you weren't a particularly good student, but you were good at math. But I get the sense that you had to have been actually a pretty good student because you went to University of Michigan, right? Mm -hmm. Did you go to Bronx Science? Yes. Let's see, I was always a smart kid, um, but I, I wasn't always the most uh, uh, studious, uh, if you will. I, I would say growing up in, in, in Brooklyn and Lower East Side of Manhattan, um, I was always the smartest kid in the class, you know, and, and but I was not in, I was not in the brightest schools. So I was just bored and I was unmotivated. And once I got to Bronx Science, I was clearly not the smartest person in, in the class. And so- Did you feel different from the other, cause there's so many Koreans in Bronx Science, but there are certain kind of like, they're all from those communities. Did you feel different from them because you had- Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, in those schools that have like Korean clubs and, yeah. and I, I never did any of that. And, and, and I still, to this day, I'm, I'm very like, you know, uh, I, I understand the bond that happens between um, people of the same cultures. Um, but I also know that people bond over different things, you know, like mm -hmm. my, my community of chefs is a bond that I have that's very strong. My community of, I don't know, people who love to read because I still love to read. Like there's a, I have a separate group of people that, you know, and, and so being Korean is just one of those bonds, but, but it's not the end all and be all for me. And so I, but I've always felt like that. And I think part of it is growing up with not too many Koreans. Mm -hmm. um, and, and some of it's been a liability because I wish I was more, you know, I wish I spoke more Korean. I wish I, I, I had more, you know, sort of Korean culture in me. But then the flip side to that is, you know, I, I, I've always lived a life that was very open-minded. Um, I've been very intrepid and, and was able to travel the world and never feel uncomfortable or shy or, or felt like I didn't belong anywhere. Um, and, I, and and really going to Bronx Science for the first, that was the first time I actually met Koreans like my age, because really yeah. going to school in, in Brooklyn, like there were no, I think there was like maybe one other Korean kid. And so, um, but that was when I started to get competitive because all of a sudden I went to Bronx Science and it was all Korean. And, um, and they were all too really, many. <laughs> yeah. And they were all really smart. And I was like, oh man, I have to step up. So you spent a year in University of Michigan, but then you had to come back home to New York. Can you talk about that transition and why you came home? It was a number of reasons, um, but uh, one of the reasons was my, my parents got into some financial difficulty. And so I had to sort of help them out. Um, but also, I mean, you know, University of Michigan was very expensive and, and I got good enough grades that I was able to get pretty much a full scholarship to NYU afterwards. So um, it just made sense for me to come home and, and go to NYU and um, help out my parents with their financial situation. Um, so, yeah, so I came back to me. I, I really liked Michigan. It was the first time I sort of lived anywhere outside of New York. But then I ended up finishing up my time at NYU. Mm -hmm. There's this wonderful anecdote in one of your books about how you convinced your parents 
to take you to sign of the dove for your birthday one year. And it's such a, a almost like a, a jewel like story I could picture almost like a movie scene. I think from the time I was like 12 to 16, I said, I, I told my parents, I said, I don't want a birthday present. I said, just once a year, I make a reservation and uh, we go to a fancy restaurant in Manhattan. We all have to get dressed up and I got to choose the restaurant. And we're gonna, of course I didn't drink. And my mom loved it. My, my dad hated it, he absolutely. Yeah, you know, <laughs> my parents to this day are really uncomfortable, I think uncomfortable. Oh, they are, because they, they just, they, they've never eaten in restaurants like that. Like my mm -hmm. mom, she kind of enjoyed though. You know, but my dad was like, he's just, all he does is eat at Korean restaurants. Yeah. So he I would mean, eat and he, he, just, he didn't like the food and it was overpriced. And then would, I remember every time we'd come home and he'd take out rice and kimchi and just go home. <laughs> <laughs> you know, after this like $300 dinner or something. Um, but yeah, no, he hated it. He hated it. That was a sign of protest. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. And he would, say, he would say, like, why is the food taking so long? And like, you're supposed to talk in between courses. Like, talk about what? I'm like, I don't know, like sophisticated things. It, it just didn't, it just, it went, it went, you know. So after you graduated NYU, where you majored in English and you spent a lot of time writing and reading great literature, I know that you opened your first restaurant, what, 98, Clay? In Nolita? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so it sounded like that was really kind of almost an instant hit. Can you tell us about those years, a little bit about Running Clay? You know, I, I actually was not planning on opening. I was 25, I think 25 or 26 when I opened the restaurant. I was not planning on doing that. I, I was working in restaurants in Manhattan and I had a good job uh, working as a line cook. And um, I just, you know, it was one of those things where I was walking down Chinatown and I saw some guy, you know, nailing a for rent sign to a wall. And I was like, you know, what is that? And told me the price. And I was like, that's ridiculous. I mean, I tell people the price now, most people faint because it was so cheap. It was really on the outer edge of Chinatown. It was, it was not a great neighborhood. It was a cute space and it was so cheap. And, um, one of my good friends was a, a, a you know, contractor, construction guy. And I took out some credit card debt and I had, I had a little cash saved up and my brother-in-law like approved a kind of a loan. So I scraped up, a, but we, we built the whole thing for, I think less than a hundred thousand dollars, which, you know. And what was on the menu? Tell us about the menu. I mean, it, you know, it was, it was definitely ahead of its time because it was really Korean food hadn't even arrived. And so we were doing like a riff off of Korean food, but most people that came in had never had Korean food eat anyway. So they didn't understand that I was riffing. They thought that was just Korean food. You know, we had pajeon and, and, and bulgogi on the menu and stuff. But we also did like, you know, miso quail with oranges, you know, things like that. And, and, and you know, um, like fish sauce salmon with papaya. I had no idea that it was going to be success. Like I really thought it was just, I don't know what I was thinking. I was really young. I didn't know what success in the restaurant business meant. You know, like I thought we would just do this and my friends would come over and we'd hang out and drink beers after work and that would be it. And um, I remember the one, the one time there was a, and I don't know what it, it was New York Times, but, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, an article on clay. It was, it was an article on Korean food. And I think it was like the new wave of Korean food, mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. we were on the cover of the uh, dining out section. 
I would always take the train to work and then I'd walk two or three blocks to the restaurant. I'm taking it off the train. I'm reading the thing. My friend's like, hey, you're going to be really busy. I'm like, Who, no one reads this. He's like, yeah, I'm going to be that busy. <laughs> no one reads in here. I don't know. I didn't know what I was thinking. And I'm reading the article and I'm walking to work and I'm, and I'm a block away. I'm a full block away from work and there's a line. And I'm like, you know, because we were, oh we were open gosh. for lunch, but we were never very busy. So it was just me and one other guy. And I'd show up late and we'd do our lunch thing. Anyways, we're, we're a block away from the restaurant. And I said, what are these people waiting for? Like, I can't imagine. And I get to the lane and they were all waiting online to go eat at the restaurant. There was a hundred people online. Oh my and, gosh. And, you know, we, so, and, and I would say that the, the, like the next month of my life was miserable. Because you just, we weren't ready. I mean, and, and also, I would say the next month, we probably served the worst food ever in that restaurant. Just because we like, you know, you're supposed to marinate something for like a two hours. So like I was mm -hmm. marinating stuff mm -hmm. for 10 minutes and just throwing it on the grill. Um, we, there, there were times in the middle of dinner where I would just leave, go to Chinatown to buy more food to bring back to the restaurant while there's a, like a room full of <laughs> customers and I would just come back with shopping bags and be like I'm sorry your dinner will be out in like 20 minutes wow. like, complete nonsense but you know it's, it's like you 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 learn those lessons young you know and uh, I mean I was 20 25 26 like it, it's something that you know you could you could utterly fail and bounce back from you know at, at that point this is also you have to imagine like this is before social media you know mm -hmm. like I, I know so many people don't even remember that time anymore. But you know, there, there was a time, even in New York, where you could do things and, and not hit it out of the park. One of the things that it taught me, like we had no money. So like if there was a plumbing issue, I would do the plumbing. Um, you know, if we needed flowers, I wouldn't hire a florist. I would go buy flowers and make my own flower arrangements. You know, I would, I would stitch my own curtains. I learned to be incredibly handy with everything. And that gave me a lot of confidence in the restaurant business to go forward and, and you know, do what I do now. You know, I was 25 and I took out a loan. I opened a restaurant. I was incredibly naive about what it would take to open a restaurant. So um, had I known how hard it was going to be, I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, but I'm glad I did because I really learned a lot, um, you know, in, in those five years. And, and, and I think when we opened, I, I, I worked seven days a week for, I think, almost two full years uh, before I took a day off. And, and that's, that's not the kind of, you don't do that when you're working for someone else. You know, you do that when it's your money and it's your ass on the line. Yeah. So mm -hmm. um, that kind of experience to me is invaluable. So I'm, I'm glad I did, even though there, there were tough years and, and, and probably not always the best food. But you've run your own restaurants ever since then. Pretty much. I mean, I, I do partnerships now as well. Mm -hmm. Then tell us, how did you transition from a, a hipster joint in Nolita and then you ended up in Kentucky? Well, very interesting story. So we were, we were in downtown Manhattan and 9-11 happened. I actually saw the second tower go down. Um, we're probably a 25 minute walk to the, to the towers. So for people who were New York, especially people who were born and raised in New York, um, it was not just a, an attack on America. It was, it was, you know, someone bombed your hometown. So it, it, it affected me in a, in a very different way than someone who didn't grow up um, in New York. I kind of just had it. <laughs> and I was like, I just got to leave New York. And also I, I'd never, you know, except for the one year in Michigan, I'd, I'd never, lived outside of New York mm -hmm. um, and I was just kind of over it and, and the restaurant was just um, 
you know, uh, Clay was, was, it was fine, but I wanted more, you know, after it was, so I think we were four years into it when that, when 9-11 happened and, um, you know, the kitchen was too small, you know, and, I, and I'd matured and I stopped partying and I grew up and, and I was over, you know, slinging pulgogi. So I, 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 you know, packed my bags and I got in the car and I drove around the country and, you know, I, I'd never really done that before in my life. I'd never seen America and, um, Part of my curiosity was like, you know, I, I live in the biggest melting pot in the world, um, but it's not America, right? This is some, you know, beautiful, diverse city um, called New York, but it's not America. So was that a road trip? You went on a road trip? Yeah, I went on a road trip and I went all over and I went to eat at different restaurants, like great classic restaurants in America, mm -hmm. like Inn at Little Washington and La Toile in Wisconsin. And someone had told me about going to Kentucky. And it was a friend of a friend. And I've always wanted to see the Kentucky Derby. So I, I went and I helped cook with him. I cooked with this uh, gentleman named Eddie Garber who had a restaurant called 610 Magnolia. And, and I didn't know it at the time, but he was old and he wanted to retire. And I, and I came and I spent a week with him. And, and you know, I, I was in Kentucky during the Derby. So everything was beautiful and everyone had beautiful hats on, you know, all the ladies looked pretty and the flowers were blooming. And I was like, this is a really nice place. Uh, and, and I went back to New York and, and he called me up and he said, well, you should, you should, you should move to Kentucky. Uh, and I said, that's absurd. Like I'm not leaving New York to, to go to Kentucky to run this tiny little restaurant in the middle of nowhere. But I was very depressed and, you know, I was, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to get out and re recharge my battery somewhere. So he kept calling, he kept calling and said, he made an offer I couldn't refuse. And I said, you know, I said, fine, I'll come down for six months. And if I don't like it, I, I move back up to New York. And after a few months, I just fell in love with it. And I was like, there's a real opportunity here. I don't know. I fell in love with the culture. I fell in love with the people. And, and, and it just, um, you know, I, I never would have predicted that that's the kind of place that I would have flourished in. Um, but that's also part of why, you know, you keep your options and you mm -hmm. keep your open mind about things. And, did you ever ask Eddie Garber why he chose you? And he hounded you. He really just called you every week for a while. He was definitely, he was, he was an eccentric Jew. Um, and he had his, he had his weird, and he still does, he's still alive. He has his weird eccentricities. Um, but, you know, he became like a father figure to me. Um, and, and has always, we've been very close ever since. And, he really wanted, you know, he built this restaurant from scratch and he really just wanted to carry the name mm -hmm. on uh, for a bit, yeah. but, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't think he, I don't think I predicted and neither he, that it would be this long, like it's beyond his and my wildest imagination that now we're going on 20 years. Mm -hmm. I've had that restaurant going for 20 years now on top of his 24 years that he had it. So I'm trying to, I'm now I'm just trying to beat him. And once, once I beat his, <laughs> his ears, I may just shudder it down, but um, now, that, now I'm just going for the record. So you became known for eventually making the menu your own, you know, mm -hmm. putting your own spin on it and definitely bringing some of your Korean flavors to these dishes. What was the response like? Um, and how did you sort of win over the diner? I, I will say this, the, the one the one rule I had when I moved to Kentucky, because everyone said, you know, obviously, a lot of stereotypes. Um, and, and, and people said, oh, you're going to Kentucky. They don't understand food. They're a bunch of hillbillies. And I'm like, 
you know, and listen, being being Asian, we all we all you know have our stereotypes that we have to deal with, and and so I was like, well, is it fair to 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 now stereotype these people just because they live in Kentucky? And so so the one rule I always had for myself was that if I when I moved to Kentucky that I wouldn't dumb down the food, that, that I wasn't going to play to my audience and and underestimate my audience and say, well, just because I'm in Kentucky, people have no uh, taste. So I'm going to make simpler food to cater to their taste buds. Um, I, said, I said, I'm going to cook my food and I'll live and die by it. And if they don't like it, that's fine. But and then they'll kick me out of Kentucky and I'll come back to New York. But I think good food is universal, right? You don't have to understand or recognize anything, but I believe that you put something in your mouth and it hits the salt and the, this acid is balanced and there's a little sweet and you're like, okay, I have no idea what I'm eating, but it's good. Um, and I think if there's an, and again, it's a small restaurant. So if there's enough people who can support that, then you have a business. And you've clearly been able to open, you know, you went on from not, more than one restaurant now you have so many you turn milkwood into a mm-hmm. relief center is that right mm-hmm. can you tell us about that one you know so we'd been shut down for three months in kentucky and then we were thinking about reopening some of the restaurants and which restaurants and, and this was the, my restaurant downtown and obviously right when we were about to reopen the protest happened and it just you know shook everyone it, there was so much violence and so much anger and pain and and um you know, for, for what it's worth, like Louisville is a wonderful city full of really good, kind people. And, and that was not what was being portrayed in the media because we were sort of the center of, of, of all that. Mm-hmm. During the middle of the protest, there was a barbecue chef and, and, and he uh, was shot and killed. And one of the people I worked with knew him. And anyway, it turned out we said, I, I'm not going to reopen Milkwood. Like this, no, no one needs this restaurant at, in this time, in this moment. This is silly. Um, and I said, well, what we need is to feed the community. What we need to do is, is take care of our people. And it's always, right, in every city you go, it's always the Black people who get ignored. It's always the Black community that gets pushed aside. It's always, like, when the rest of the city rises up, it's always the Black community that, that doesn't rise up. And, and I said, well, we, we have to do something. We have to at least, um, you know, um, say that we care, say that we're involved, say that, that we're going to, and, and that we're going to do things once the headlines are gone. That is not just like, oh, hey, this is the moment so I'm going to post something on Instagram and, and, and pretend like I care. And so, you know, it, we made this thing. We named it after him, which is very controversial in, in Louisville. Um, and, and, you know, we proceeded to feed the community for, you know, over six months and, and hundreds of thousands of meals. Now we're going to relaunch it as a training center um, so that we can take young kids who you know want jobs in the restaurant industry but can't afford cooking school, can't get they can't get a job to get training, and so we're going to take young kids, um, train them up so that they can get you know find careers in the restaurant industry. So could you talk about the Lee Initiative? It started um, a few years ago to try to support more women getting into the industry, and then during the pandemic, it's just reach out to support so many different communities. Yeah, I mean we we it, it really started. Um, Gosh, four years ago now, um, we started the nonprofit really as a, as, as a, uh, it's a, you know, mentorship training program and to an education really to like increase diversity and gender equality in the restaurant business. Once the pandemic hit, we, we decided to do relief meals and to help out, um, uh, 
restaurant workers who all were, you know, all of a sudden unemployed and um, it just went crazy. And, and we raised, and I think in, in the year since we, we've raised close to $7 million, um, you know, and, and we've handed out almost all of it in direct uh, aid to restaurants and farms across America. Amazing. We want to talk about your writing too. Juliana and I both love Smoke and Pickles and Buttermilk Mm -hmm. Graffiti. I was uh, watching Padma's Hulu show, Nation, and I thought, hey, Edward Lee wrote this as a book (laughs) before this game. It was very similar of how she traveled around the country and talked about immigrants. Well, you can say that. I can't. Yeah. You can He wrote a beautiful, I I loved her show, but I I definitely encourage you that you had written that as a book, yeah. a fantastic book. Um, yeah. so. You know, I, 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 uh, she's got a little bit more star power than I do. I know. So, and that is the world of show business. But anyway, yes, continue. Um, so we're wondering, do you have another book in mind? You're clearly, you love to write and you're such a great storyteller. And I love how you mix the personal, the reportage, the... Yeah, um, I do. I, I might be working on something. Um, I, I keep things pretty close to the chest until um, they come out, but I'm also not prolific. These books take a lot out of me. So I'm like, if it's like once every five years, I'm good. So hopefully, hopefully something in the next year or so, a eh, year or two. I am fortunate in that I don't have to do it. Um, you know, so I, I really only do it when... when it's something that I, I can be really proud of, and, and, and so uh, I have I have an idea, and I'm working on it, but I haven't fully fleshed it out yet. As I get older and I can't cook as much, I, I will probably write more. You know, when I read Buttermilk Graffiti, I thought this guy is a, a cook, but he writes so beautifully. How is that fair? <laughs> How many different skills does this guy have? And then uh, I found out that you were an English major in college, and there's lots of references to Faulkner. So Clearly, there's a love of reading. Before the, the cooking thing happened, I, I wanted to be a writer. When you're 21, 22, and, and looking down the barrel of a career being a writer, like, to me, being a writer is very, it's a very lonely profession. You know, you, you basically spend all your days by yourself. And I just, I didn't want that when I was young. Um, now, now I'm older and I don't like people, so I'm, I'm fine <laughs> being alone and writing. Well, can I tell you that one of my favorite pieces of writing um, is the donor letter. I know you posted it on your Instagram and I read that and I can't even tell you. I mean, I was in tears by the end of it. And it was almost like, take all my money. You know, I was like on your, I was on your website thinking, oh my God, I I can't, you can't take my money fast enough. (laughs) Thank you. You somehow managed to get me to understand and feel what these people were going through. Well, thank you. It's, it's, this whole year has been so emotional. Seeing these families, seeing these people need, seeing people who, who, you know, like proud people, you know, who have never asked for help, you know, reaching out, it, just, it kills you. Um, and these are peers. I, I would say the work that we've done with the Lee Initiative, it's kept me from going into a really deep depression because as long as you can help, you don't feel so helpless. In the overall scheme of things, we're still a tiny nonprofit. When the ice happened in Texas, you know, I go, I, I read the news like anyone else and I go, oh shit, they need help. And we mobilized and we sent 35,000 uh, uh, bottles of water to hospitals. 
you know, we, we set up meal things and yes, you know, and so does Jose, um, you know, on a much bigger level. And, and, and we can do this. And then five days later, after everything melts, FEMA comes in and goes, okay, we're here to feed. And I'm just like, I, I understand that. I understand it's big night, but it's like in this day and age, you have to be fast and nimble. And how does a small nonprofit from Kentucky move faster than FEMA? Like you can't have a, a, a small nonprofit like mine move faster than you. That is unacceptable in America in 2021. It feels like the infrastructure of everything is just broken right now. Um, so, so like my goal is not to be a relief center, um, mm. but we will do it for as long as we need to. 2020 has been such a difficult year. You talk about how 9-11 really changed you and uh, um, that was a national trauma and uh, COVID is a global trauma and there's so much that you're going through. I wonder how you think 2020 has changed you and how you'll come out of it on the other side. I mean, it's I think it's changed everyone a lot. I don't, you know, I, I think it's funny because we're, we're now sort of, we see a light at the end of the tunnel. So everyone's asking like, what's the, what's the future like? And, then, and and for anyone in the restaurant business, like we're, we're still kind of in the middle of the trauma. A lot of this will show itself in the next couple of years. I think it's gonna take a lot of time for people and, and entire industries to process what's going on, what happened, what, what really happened, you know, how this really is gonna affect them. I, I will always do, you know, nonprofit work. I think there'll always be a part of me that wants to do this. It's just, it's, it's very important. You know, maybe the standard of a restaurant is not just that it serves good food and that it's profitable, but maybe it's you serve good food, you're profitable, and you give back to your community um, and you make your community a better place. So, like, if, if that can become part of a restaurant's mission, part of its PL sheet, part of its like, you know, defining factor, then it, it, we really can change what restaurants can mean in the next generation. You saw your mom, you and your mom cooking dakboki. How's she doing? And have you been able to see her? And she... uh, I haven't, I haven't, but we talk a lot. She's fine. She's she's a tough lady. She's, um, she hasn't really, she still goes to her job. She just got vaccinated actually, um, or actually got her first dose. For most of the, you know, I, you know, I'm not gonna tell an old lady what to do, um, but she was still doing her volunteer work and going to work. And What does she do now? She helps senior citizens. You know, she works with a local church group. And so she was, she's been very active and, 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 you know, she's been obviously being safer, but she's, you know, she's, mm -hmm. you know, she, she, she's, I'm not going to sit at home and, and just rot away. <laughs> I gotta do my thing. So and she's come she's, around to having a chef's son and she's not ashamed to have a Korean son who's a servant. No, now she, now she brags about me all the time. And I said, you didn't do that when I was, <laughs> when I was younger. <laughs> I said, you remember those times when you were embarrassed? It was like, oh, that was a long time ago. I don't remember that. It's nice to see, because my dad died a while ago. Um, it, was, it was nice that my mom got to see at least some, you know, uh, success. And we, like, she likes going to restaurants now. And we'll go to a restaurant, you know, and like, you know how you go and like the chef knows you and, and they'll send a free oh, dessert, yeah. you know. I love like, that. And, and she just thinks that's the coolest thing. Like of all the things, like, you know, I, I could like, buy her a trip to Hawaii, whatever. But you got a free dessert at a restaurant. Like that's the coolest thing. I'm like, I don't- Because it is the coolest thing. <laughs> but yeah, it's like any free thing.
Thank you to Edward Lee for being our guest on K-Pod, a production of KoreanAmericanStory.org. You can follow Chef Lee on Instagram at Chef Edward Lee. And to learn more about how to help, check out LeeInitiative.org or follow them on Instagram at LeeInitiative. Our audio engineer is AJ Valente. Our production manager is Jessica Park. Our executive producer is H.J. Lee. You can follow me at Catherine Hung 100 and Juliana at Juliana underscore Son. You can follow K-Pod on Instagram at K-Pod Pod. Thanks again for listening.